Hello and welcome to another episode of Borders Blatherings, our wee podcast in which we, Mary and I, shine a light on the curious, shadowy and often very magical history of the Scottish Borderlands. Mary, we didn't record last week because you had lost your voice. Everything okay now? Absolutely fine. I'm sure several of my friends and relatives were quite happy that for once I couldn't talk. <laughs> they got peace and quiet for all week. Good start. <laughs> God, you two talk too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we start today's instalment, a few things have been coalescing, coming together in my mind of late. Mm-hmm. If I can take you back a little while, when Mary and my partner and I first moved to the borders, Cassie was a puppy. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to find increasingly interesting walks for Cassie, yeah. replete with rabbits, squirrels, and other things to chase. <laughs> so this took us around the borders mm-hmm. in, in, in many, many locations. And it occurred to me slowly, because of my interest in language, that a lot of the loca- location and place names seem to me to have a kind of Welsh influence. Uh-huh. Although I wasn't quite sure at the time. Mm-hmm. And then if we move on a couple of years to when Mary and I moved into the village of Stow, and Cassie and I would visit you at the Stow Gallowater History Archive to see what you were doing, because mm-hmm. uh, Cassie loved it there, as you know, you would often talk about a group of people called the Gododden. Yep. And I would often leave the History Archive thinking, you know, if Mary were ever on Mastermind... <laughs> the Gododden might well be her specialist subject, although I knew very little about them. Uh-huh. And here's the thing. Two weeks ago, on a fascinating program on the BBC called The Art That Made Us, mm-hmm. there was that accomplished actor. Um, oh, what's his name? The guy who did the thing with... Uh, uh, the guy who did the thing. The Welsh actor. Um He's played Tony Blair. He's played Brian Clough. Oh, yes. His name's escaping me. I can see his face. This is a good start to this podcast, <laughs> folks. As you can tell, it's not scripted. It's not scripted, It's so no. unscripted. We now are both trying to find the name of the actor that we can both see, but I know exactly who you mean. So this is yeah. good. Do you think we should script these podcasts? <laughs> Would it make it any better? Uh-huh. Would our listeners sit there and realise <laughs> that we actually had a script? You and I would never stick to a script. But yes, I know the actor you mean. Unfortunately, I cannot think of his name. I, I'm sorry, I'm old and I'm, I'm, I'm losing it. I have the feeling his name is Sheen. But, uh, yes, Martin. Martin Sheen. No, that's, no, he's, he's, that's, that's the real Estevez. Yes. Um, Welsh. It'll come to us in the middle yeah, of the podcast. Will. And if it does while we're talking blathering away, I'll, I'll shout the name out. Um, he recited a poem in uh, the Welsh language right. called E Gododdin. So these things have all come together. What I loved about it, without getting involved in Scottish football fans, was this idea of, in the po- they fasted, feasted, they were drunk on mead, and they, they cherished Honourable defeat mm-hmm. over ignoble victory. And mm-hmm. I thought, my type of guys. Yep. But the question is, 
who and when, where ah. the good order. Because very little is known or talked about. Mm. These people. And my last question before you speak mm. is, what is the correct collective noun? Do we think of these as a people? Or were they a tribe? Or what is it we're talking about? Because they were centered in this part of the world, yeah? They were, yes. Okay. So we're going to start off with the fact that Britain at that time was the Britons were what we would now call Welsh. Everybody in the British Isles uh-huh. was Welsh. Okay. Okay. We had some Scottish who were in Ireland, just to confuse matters, and they came across to Scotland, and we had another tribe known as Picts. Okay. But predominantly, mm. everything below the Highland line of Scotland, so southern Scotland, England, and Wales was Welsh. Is the easy way to remember it. Uh-huh. So in the borders, you had what was known as the Votadini tribe. Now, the Votadini acted as a buffer tribe between the Picts in northern Scotland and the Romans who pitched up. And the Votadini were um, quite liked by the Romans because they acted as a buffer tribe, not liked by the Picts. Yeah, okay? Votadini itself sounds like a Roman it name. It was a Roman name. Yeah. 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 But the rest of uh, England and Wales, they were what would become the Gododin. So... After the Romans leave, the Votadini realise that actually they're on a hiding to nothing because everybody's looking at them and saying, you were pals with Romans, we don't like you. <laughs> and they sort of dissolve away and you get the Gododin coming in. Now, uh-huh. the Gododin are, they stretch from Wales all the way up to the borders and right the way up to the River Forth. And up here in the borders, it was known as Hen Oglith of the Old North. And that's what they were named by the Welsh. We were the Old North. And you write about the poem Egododin, which is where we get most of our information about them. And did you know that the place that they feasted in for an entire year was Edinburgh? Yes. Because that was their capital. Dunedin. Dunedin, yeah. The, the interesting thing is, I learned from this yet unnamed actor <laughs> that although... In the Welsh language, the person who wrote it lived in Edinburgh. In Iron, yes. Yeah. He was he was the king of the bards, and he lived in Edinburgh because yeah. that was where the capital was. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they actually had two capitals. They had Traprain Law in East Lothian, and they had Edinburgh, Dunedin. Um, Traprain uh, Law was their religious centre, yeah. but Edinburgh was their political centre. Mm-hmm. So... You've got the Gdodin tribe, and they're fine, and they're trading. They've got rid of the Romans, that's fine. But the problem is that after the Romans left, other people pitched up, mainly the Anglo-Saxons. Mm-hmm. So there were Frisians, and there were various folk that turned up, but the Anglo-Saxons started pitching up. And they mostly settled around where London is today, so Sussex and Essex and places like that. But they start pushing further in, and they start pushing further up. And so... There's a call comes out from Wales. We're going to have to do something about these angles. We're going to have to fight them. And so what they do is they decide to um, gather their forces, as it were, and push these Anglo-Saxons out of the country. But because they had quite a large, because the Anglo-Saxons had quite large settlements in the south, they went, well, we'll go up to Henogleth, we'll go up to the Old North, we will go up to our capital in Edinburgh. And that's where 300 chieftains went up. Now, the Gododin were a people, they were a tribe, it's always difficult with, with these words, yeah. and they had about 300 chieftains 
each of whom would have been in charge of their own tribe, if you like, but they okay. all okay. recognised themselves as Gododin. Yeah. So they got these 300 chieftains go up to Edinburgh, where, as the poem says, they spent an entire year getting drunk. Now, they did not <laughs> spend an entire year getting drunk, but it certainly reads like that in the poem. The problem is the word... You mean on a Friday night exactly. and you get drunk, pick a fight. Exactly. The problem <laughs> is the word mead. Because yeah. most people think that the word mead means the drink mead. And it does, but it can also mean whatever the Lord gives his people. Mm-hmm. So it might be mead, it might be drink, it might be food, it might be clothing. It might be anything. So so mead initially meant that gifts you got from your Lord and then narrowed down to become mead. And so that's why if you read the poem today, you think, oh, flipping it. Yeah, they spent a, a year in Edinburgh. Yeah, 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 they spent yeah, a whole year in Edinburgh yeah. basically getting drunk. Bread, ambrosia, how things These sorts change, of things, yeah. yeah. But if yeah. you actually read the poem, which is one of the main sources for what we know about Gododin, is it's incredibly sophisticated. Because they talk about drinking mead, and they talk about drinking beer, and they talk about drinking wine, which means they're brewing. Yeah. These, are, these are people who are brewing. They talk about the food they eat, and it's a very varied diet. So they're obviously farming sheep and cattle and oxen and pigs and chickens. And then they've got people, they're talking about um, meats sweet roasted with honey. So you've got chefs in there doing all sorts of exciting things. This, these are not sort of people wandering about grunting in, in mud huts. These are sophisticated people. Yeah. And then if they talk about um, going to battle, they talk about having spurs of gold. Now, a spur is actually, for those that are non-horsey people like myself, it's almost like a little wheel with spikes on it, yeah. blunted spikes, and it's yeah. to encourage your horse to go. Right? It's actually a really intricate piece of kit to make because if it's too soft, the horse will just go, I don't care. But if it's too jagged, it will hurt the animal. So it's a really intricate thing to make, which means you've got really skilled goldsmiths. And also, this is a piece of kit on a horse. Are you genuinely going to have gold mm. on, on, on your stirrups or on your spurs? Are these people so rich that that's what they're doing, mining Welsh gold to make spurs? Or was it just that it was a shiny metal and so they called it gold? We're talking about sophisticated swords and spears and small daggers. So again, you've got silversmiths, you've got, you've got a lot of smith working, metal working. We're talking about chain mail. We're talking about, um, all of the armory they've got in the livery for the horses. So these are a really sophisticated people. You know, they're not just subsistence farmers. But wait a minute. Like a You're saying the Romans have gone. Yep. Romans have gone. But. You see, many people listening will go, well, wait a minute, many. The Romans have gone, so mm-hmm. we're about to just go into the Dark Ages because Oh, can I throw things at you? Can I throw things at you? Now, I know who's responsible for the Dark Ages. Who's to blame? <laughs> the, the, the Victorians. <laughs> there was no such thing as the Dark Ages. Indeed, yeah. And that's the problem, is that that has hung over and people like the Votadini and people like the Gododin and all of these different tribes, it's just assumed. Whitewash that. that we'll whitewash yeah. that. And I will come back to that for a rant later on, I can assure Good you. Good on you. <laughs> <laughs> but these were really sophisticated people. I mean, the very fact that you've got a poem that lasts for 98 stanzas, which yeah. is, I would say, stands in equal stead to Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. Uh-huh. And yet that's taught in schools as this great poem. The E. Gododin is not. I now, heard nothing about uh, the Gododin at high school. Mm-hmm. Yet the Odyssey, the Iliad, very familiar yeah. with it. Yeah. 
You know, just saying, the editor, boring. Well, they're not boring, that's unfair of me, but they're very... Now, actually, the, there's a difference in structure. You'll like this linguistically. The, the Iliad and the Odyssey tell a story, um, which you can follow all the way through, and, you know, you've got all the different characters and what they're doing and why they're doing and all the rest of it. The Ecosodin doesn't do that. What it does is it tells you of the big battle they had, mm. but in that it tells you about the people, but it's a, it tells you about the battle. The, it's, a, it's a series of stanzas that are vignettes about particular characters and about oh, events yeah. in the battle. It's not an actual narrative of itself. So mm. the people have gone up to Edinburgh. The chieftains have gone up to Edinburgh. I mean, think about it. First of all, Somebody somewhere said, we don't like the Anglo-Saxons, we need to fight them. They then had to send out to all of these 300 chieftains that are ranging in location from Wales all the way up to Edinburgh. How do you do that? They must have had a sophisticated communication service. There must yeah, have been a, yeah. you know, it's not just a case of, if I don't want to use my mobile phone or technology or a postage stamp and I say to somebody, could you tell my mate down in Cardiff I want to see them? What are the chances that's going to happen? So they must have been able to send out messengers knowing that that was going to happen. These were skilled horsemen as well. So they're going all the way down and these 300 chieftains then decide to go up to Edinburgh, which is as far away from the Anglo-Saxons as they can get to have a conversation. They spend a year planning the battle. So the logistics of planning a battle for a year and where are they going to stay and what are they going to do and who's going to feed them and then gathering your horses and gathering your men and getting your armour and getting your camp followers. You know, this is a full military campaign they are planning. Yeah. Um, and then deciding where to have the battle. Where is the weak point for them to go to? And they choose Catrice, which we're thinking is Catterick. And the yeah. reason they phone, they go to Catterick is because it was, it had previously been a big military Roman base. That was important. So they knew yeah. it. Yeah. They yeah. knew what happened there. And interestingly, there are lots of sort of religious allusions through the poem. Um, and Catholic Catrice was very interesting because Paulinus is supposed to have done mass baptisms in the River Swale um, just after the big battle that takes place. So it's interesting that they chose the battle site. The Anglo-Saxons didn't. They were just, you know coming in and taking over as much land as they could, but the Gododin come in and they make a definite point and they go down and the battle takes place sometime before 638, because 638 is when Edinburgh falls to the Anglo-Saxons, but it's somewhere around about the year 600 that that they go down and they have okay. this massive so battle. We, we've dated this then. Mm. Um, to the north. Yep. Edinburgh and Dunbar. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Dunbar, yes. in a sense. Yeah. To the south, how far south does their influence spread, given there is no border as we know it today? Definitely down as far as the Humber. Okay. But with very, very strong connections to uh, Gwyneth. In Wales. In Wales, yeah. yeah Very yeah. strong. They, they, okay. they, they don't call themselves the Gododin in Wales, but they are. It's the same tribe, basically. They're just taking different names. Okay. Um, so it's a very, very strong there. And interestingly, the uh, poem of E. Gododin is, of course, famous because we get the first mention of the word Arthur. Mm -hmm. 
Now, there are some people who say that was not (laughs) the Arthur, and it may not have been the Arthur. And Arthur. Now, we know that Arthur's a composite figure anyway, but it's very interesting that this poem is the poem, and they they make a fleeting mention to Arthur, so I think it could be possibly dated to being the one of the first mentions of Arthur. Yeah. Oh, for those of you who are screaming Michael Sheen. Hey, we got there. That was the the wonderful (laughs) actor who who recited this glorious poem in the Welsh language. We knew it was a Sheen, it just wasn't the right, wasn't the Martin, (laughs) it was a Michael. There we go. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. But it is, I mean, an iron was such a good bard because you, you can hear in the other Welsh bards as you go on through the centuries where they talk about wishing they had the genius of an iron because he was this. This is a great, I mean, it, it, it's, as I say, it stands in equal to Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Mm-hmm. You know, there are 90 odd stanzas. It was written sometime between the 6th and the 9th century. Um, there are some stanzas in there that might be sort of later editions, but it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it follows the rules of oral poetry. It has repeating phrases and repeating rhythms within the poem, but there's so much. I mean, there's things mm-hmm. like um, one of the warriors is described as being like a lion, a raging lion on the battlefield, and he can slay any man. But when he's at home having a drink with his wife, he's as meek as a lamb. Which is lovely. But that's you're the getting... beautiful juxtaposition, you know. Yes. They fought like warrior poets. <laughs> yes. It's lovely. It's, it's absolutely lovely. Yeah. yeah. The border, as we know it today, mm. did not exist. I often put the blame on James VI and first because he was so pro-union. Am I right in thinking he created this land called the Middle Shires as part of the the campaign to force the Union through, to prove that the the Union, uh, Scotland, England, could work, that where we are today was part of what he called the Middle Shires? Yes, yes. He was trying to flatten out the Scottishness, if you like. He was actually trying to flatten out the Englishness as well. He was trying to make Britain into Britain, uh-huh. which as a political exercise was interesting, but considering we come from such a mixed background of Celts and Angles and Saxons and Jutes and Frisians and, yeah. and, and Norwegians and Vikings and this and that, and everything, because we're an island and that's it, and everybody pitched up. And of course, from about, the problem we had was that the, the Roman Empire splits and the Roman Empire in the West falls and there is a huge migration of peoples. Yeah. Because but it of continues that, for and a it continues, long, long time. It continues. In, 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 and so you get Western movement of people. Yeah. And of course, if you keep on going and keep on going and keep on going, you end up in Britain, as in, you know, Britain and then Ireland, and then there's nothing but the Atlantic until you hit American landfall sort of yeah. type thing. Yeah. So we have always had wave upon wave upon wave of people coming yeah. here, which is the joy of being British. We're all a mixture of everybody and it's great and it's lovely, although some people possibly don't like it. But, you know, it's great. That's what's interesting mm-hmm. about us. That's what makes people like the Gododans so interesting. That you go back into this deep history and you find people like the Votadini or the Gododan or when they fall in 638, you've then got the kingdoms of Bernicia and Mercia yeah. and all these different small kingdoms of different peoples sometimes fighting with each other, sometimes trading with each other, sometimes getting along, sometimes not, which is human nature. 
You know, we just happen mm. to be... It's almost as if we're sort of Europe in, in miniature <laughs> in Britain where we've got all these different people. That, that's, that's a way of looking at it, yeah. 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 You know, yeah. And, and the fact is, I mean, the, the Gododin were, if you like, they weren't an insular people because they were looking at the Anglo-Saxons and thinking, why are you pitching up here? We don't want you. Mm-hmm. Now, the Votadini had taken one look at the Romans and thought, we'll trade with them. Yeah. Well, that's one way to do it. Yeah. The Gododon went, no, we're not trading, we're going to fight because we don't want you here. And it wasn't so much that they didn't want the Anglo-Saxons, it's they could see who was coming after them. It was one of those, no, I don't want you here because you're going to bring everybody over. And so they were pushing that back. And there was a strong pushback from Wales as well because they were be- they had been being pushed out and pushed out and pushed out by the Romans. And now here were more people pushing them out. So, you know, the, the, there was a definite... They didn't just have a bit of a fight. It wasn't as if there were two or three of the chieftains within the Gododin. It was an absolutely definite, we are going to fight. And they spent a year up in Edinburgh um, organising it. If you read the poem, they will talk about the fact that they had 300 chieftains and the Anglo-Saxons had 50,000 men. Mm. Now, we're not into the film The 300. It's not Sparta. <laughs> <laughs> but that was 300 chieftains and each of those chieftains would have had their men yeah. as well. And so they go down to Catreus and they have this huge battle and they lose. And that's the problem because at that time their chieftains fought. It wasn't like later on battles where the chiefs would stand on a hill. The chieftains, the vast majority of their chieftains were killed. They were killed. And so they were left with no, with no leaders and they were sort of subsumed into the, 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 um, Bernicean and the, the Mercian kingdoms. So it's one of these... Also, they become the Gondodden. <laughs> well, uh, you could. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah so, so, you know, they didn't last for long, but they were important in their own way because of this connection between Wales and Henogleth, the Old North, and that is why, as you say, we've got all these Welsh place names right the way across the border. Yeah, I, th- 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 I had no backstory to connect this to. It was yeah. just a feeling mm. that I had. Um as you know, Mary, I'm neither an academic or a historian, but at high school, I remember being forced to sing Men of Harlech. I can think of other songs that, that I had to learn by rote, but I learned nothing about the Gedodin. Yes. Why? Now, this is where Are I am. Are we talking with, yeah. politics oh, here? Oh, we're talking politics here. Yes. So... It, I'm blaming the I'm, I'm blaming the Victorians. I like to blame people. Anyway, so <laughs> so we had the 1848. The British government in Westminster is looking at what's happening in Europe and it's looking at all these small revolutions that are kicking off all over the yes, place. Yes, indeed. Right? Yeah. We've talked about this before. And we've yeah. talked about the fact that, as per usual, the British do nothing and then get into a panic at the last minute. Mm. And because Britain was and is a composite kingdom, they worried about that. That's why they picked up on King Arthur, who was a Welsh person yep. and they created him and made him Briton and British and so oh, like what, good old St George like good old St George who was <laughs> Turkish he was Turkish wasn't he um, so that's what they did so what they looked at they looked at um, the best of classical education yep. was coming from the Roman and the Greek world so what you do is you look at our Roman past you look at all of the Roman cities that existed in Britain and that's your starting point you say right okay what we have is we are a civilized people because we come from the Roman and Greek democratic principles and you completely ignore 
all of the original peoples that lived in Britain. So you get rid of people like the Gododin and the Votadini and anyone like that. She'll, and you sort of airbrush everybody out and say, well, there were Celts and there were some Picts. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. And that's it. But they're all dismissed. And even the words that we use, even the language that we use, it's Roman place names or it's Roman people names. Like the Scots, it's Scotiae, it comes from the Latin, it's all the names that the Romans gave us. Yeah. And um, they will look at, there are, there are some very early history books that are actually based on what the Romans wrote about Britain. And these were Romans that had never been here. Mm. You know, the, the fact that Braveheart has got blue wood on his face. No, he didn't. Did William Wallace did not wander about <laughs> with a blue painted face. I support the best football team in the world called Hibernian. There you go. You see what I mean? So we've got Hibernian. all of that. Exactly. So you've got all of this nonsense because if you can root your composite country in a democratic principle, then there is no need oh, to split it well apart. Yeah. So what you do is you ignore Scotland and England and you just call everybody British and there's North British or there's West British. We're all British. We'll ignore all of the, the messy bits because they got the, the, the Votadini and the Gdodden and where were they and where was Mercia? And it's all a bit messy, isn't it? So we'll just ignore all of that and we'll say we were Roman and that's it. And mm, it yeah. means that we end up ignoring who we were and where we came from. Mm. And there's nothing against the fact that the Romans came over here and they did. And, but equally the Gdodden were here as well. You know, so, so it, it's sort of cherry picking the ones you like to make a political point and to say, we are great, we are grand. Look at the number of public schools in Britain that taught and possibly still teach classics. I mean, classics is what you do. You go to university, you read classics and you become prime minister. There you go. That's what you do. <laughs> Nobody I know of has ever been prime minister of this country with a knowledge of the tribes of Scotland and Wales. I know so, of nobody who has studied, you know, Welsh anthropology and gone on to become prime minister. They've all gone through the Oxford system and, and done classics at some level. Well, you've just written off Angela Rayner's chances. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, you see. And, but that's it. Isn't it interesting that the criticism she has had, for those who don't know Angela Rayner, is the deputy leader of the Labour Party, yeah. who has recently been criticised. She's had a bit of misogyny chucked at her, but what's new? But the biggest criticism I feel was the fact that because she wasn't university educated, she could not challenge Boris Johnson, who is university educated, in the classics tradition. So she had to resort to mimicking Sharon Stone. Exactly. So, you know, and that, and this is diminishing her. I mean, I have absolutely no idea how intelligent, well read, educated she is, but the influence was because he'd been, he was an Oxbridge man, she wasn't. So we still have this harking back to classics, harking yeah. back to yeah. Rome and Greece. Mary, we've gone through this podcast without my making a political point, but, but I cannot resist it. I have the feeling that many people in the UK consider that someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg is by definition more intelligent than they are. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of deference, which we've touched on before. Mm. I can tell you now, if I ever considered that Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, was more intelligent than my good self, I would be seeking therapy. (laughs) Well, the problem is he's got the posh voice and he's been to a posh university. And he wears a a top hat. And he he dresses like a posh person. Ergo, he must be intelligent. Therefore, he must be intelligent. 
You started that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to, to move on. So a fascinating poem, Igadon. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Well well worth to read. And as I say, it, it comes from, there are two main sources for it. The known scribe A and scribe B. And they were writing between about the 6th and the 9th century. There are some stanzas that are possibly a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there are uh, mentions about um, the word matins, the, the sort of, um, uh-huh. which is a particular time of day within yeah. the uh, monastic calendar. And there weren't quite monastery uh, rules set up in Britain yeah, at that, that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the fact that religion is mentioned, early Christian religion is mentioned. And as I say, they go down to fight this battle at Catholic where Paulinus uh, had those mass baptisms. Is interesting. But it um, was glorious defeat. It was unfortunately glorious defeat, yeah. yes. But, the best kind. <laughs> but the, the, the poem and an iron, the poem is, is, was continued to be told for many, many years within the Welsh language, and still is today. Um, it's, it's a well-known poem. Yeah. In Wales, it sits alongside their tales like the Mabinogion and their other old tales, and if you look at that, and if you look, go across to Ulster and listen to their tales about their giants, there are strong, yes, yeah. strong similarities um, that have been lost, unfortunately lost, I think, to our detriment. You, you to cycle back a little bit, you railed against my use of the term, the Dark Ages. Yes. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Why do we have this period in, in popular history then called the Dark Ages? The Romans have gone. Yep. It's the end of the world as we know it. Of course, because they're civilised. Uh-huh. And therefore, until... Why that myth persisted? Until Christianity gets embedded in, until we get proper text. There's a period of about four to 500 years where mm. we don't have a lot of texts. Now, we have lots of other things. We have lots of artefacts. There's a lot of art. Um, there are um, sculpted stones. There is uh, burial, uh, grave goods, all sorts of things. But because it's not text-based, it's considered the Dark Ages. Once the scribes come in, once the manuscripts start to get made round about the year 1000, then oh, all of a sudden that's fine again. But that period is because the assumption is that the Romans were civilizing, and then when they left, we all just yeah, yeah, we all just yeah, I don't know started yeah. scratching ourselves yeah. and, and eating grubs or something. I've no idea. And then when the church gets finally established and starts having monasteries and starts producing these beautiful manuscripts, yeah. um, then we're we're out of the dark ages. I mean, at one point in in the Egadodin, they talk about the uh, chieftain warriors wearing ringlets of amber, amber worth a, a, a year's worth of wine, you know, beautiful jewellery yeah, that was used. Yeah. And again, that shows to me that they were actually trading because you don't get a lot of amber in Britain. You get amber in places like Bohemia and Moravia. They were trading continentally. But because that wasn't written, and something like the Ecododin, well, it's written in Welsh, so we don't want mm. Welsh, thank you very much. We want Old English. Um, because, you know, we just yeah. don't want it. If, it. if it's not Roman and Greek and classical... Or it's English. We're not interested. We don't want to know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You, 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 you're right. I, I, my mind's running forward to Erasmus and, and Martin Luther arguing about the written word and mm. the Pandora's box that might open. Yeah. I have seen a sculpture, uh, that is dated from the time of the Gododon that we're, we're talking about. Mm. And 
it's as much every man as Max earns the screen. You know, mm-hmm. it, it is this beautiful visual image. Yes. Free yes. of words. Yes. But that's the problem is because the Victorians had a huge drive on literacy, which yeah. was a good thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah. because of yeah. that, they gave primacy to text. And you still get that in education today. I'm now going to have a rant about the education system. <laughs> we still give primacy to those yeah. whose intelligence helps them read a book. Whereas people who are creatively intelligent or intelligent in different ways yeah. are, are just, you know, IQ tests were always based on textual matters. Correct. Yeah. So that's yeah. the problem is that if you give yeah. primacy to text and you look at a period in history where it's about four to five hundred years where you don't have text, then oh, because you get the same thing with when the first explorers arrived in places like Australia and they looked at the Aboriginal people and they did not have written text. They had an oral tradition. Yeah. So it was, oh, well, they don't have any history. You look in the United States of America You've got the Native American peoples. A lot of them didn't have written tests. They had oral traditions. So the assumption is they have no history. I have spoken to Americans and they'll say, oh, but we don't really have any history going back before, you know, 17-whatever. And I'll say, <laughs> you Native American people yeah. living there for 10,000 years, but yep. they don't see yep. it because it's not written down. It's not textual. We still have that emphasis. That, I remember when I lived in the States, Doug, we're going to go up to Peter and Provincetown. There's, mm. there's a whaling museum there from the from the 17th century. And yeah. I say, in Edinburgh, I drink in a pub <laughs> that dates from the 13th century. <laughs> yeah. What are you people talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And so if you have that dark ages, then what happens is people like the Gododin just disappear into that dark age hole. Yeah. And that's why there are fascinating people that were around for a long time, and yet we don't seem to know anything about them. This has yeah. to be rectified. Yeah. This yeah. has to be The rectified. Gododin were around for roughly the same time as the British Empire. Uh-huh. Yeah. Roughly the same amount of time. Yeah. And yet we, we seem to know very, very little about them. Not just that we know very little about them, but the vast majority of people don't even know they existed. And that, I think, is to our detriment and to theirs. And their legacy? Their legacy is... If you read the poem and really read that poem, they can take you back to a fascinating world, a world of excitement, a world of fear, a world where people are under threat, where people are making friendships and they're making companionships, and a world where ordinary people are trying to live their lives Mm -hmm. in extraordinary times. And there are lessons for us there. Yeah. Talking of epic stories that we do know... um a favourite movie of mine is the Cohen Brothers, O Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is their take on Homer's Odyssey. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating piece, and it's about these very things. Yes. Friendships, trust, the search, the quest. Mm -hmm. But said in modern times. Absolutely. Do you have a, a story to end on? Something that we can remember the good of and by. We all need to get into our history books and find out more about them. You've certainly got me I would, much I more would, interested in I would dread to try and think. I, I would fear to try and do anything other than say to people, go and read a good and just immerse yourself in that world of mead, of feasting, yeah. of warriors, of battles. Yeah. And see where your your deep roots come from. The roots. Fascinating. Mary, 
Thank you very much. Of all the podcasts we have done together, I would say this is one in which I have learned even more than I normally do when I'm <laughs> chatting away to you. And we even remembered an actor's name, so that's us. We got there eventually. We got there yeah. in the end. Thank you very much for listening. And as I often say, just to remind you, should you listen to us and enjoy what we do, please feel free to support us in any way you can and visit our website, Borders Blatherings. Bye for now. <laughs>